Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Despite what you may have heard about the shark population, there are more sharks now than we've ever seen. Videos like these are more common and fishermen are losing their catches to sharks more than ever before. On today's show, I have Congressman Rob Whitman, who's sponsoring a bill to address the overwhelming increase in shark population and its effects on recreational fishermen. Congressman, welcome to the show. I'm uh, Rob Whitman, represent the 1st Congressional District of Virginia, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. So, Congressman Rob Whitman, hot seat, one minute. Here we go. Inshore or offshore? Offshore. Rock, country, or other? Uh, rock. Mountains or beaches? Beaches. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Text or calls? Text. One thing you're afraid of? Uh, not being able to fish as often as I like. <laughs> Winter Olympics or Summer Olympics? Uh, Summer Olympics. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. Audio, paper, or Kindle? Uh, audio. The last book you remember reading? Um, uh, gosh. Um, uh, that, Neptune's that Inferno. Okay, good. Office, Friends, or Parks and Rec? Uh, Parks and Rec. Which technological gadget do you re rely on the most in your daily life? Uh, my cell phone. Um, let's see. Uh, something you're proud of? Uh Getting getting through some legislation uh, to preserve and uh, conserve the Chesapeake Bay. Okay, name a movie that always makes you laugh. Oh gosh, um, um, wow. Well, that's a that's a good one. You actually made it quite a bit further than than most oh, people. Oh wow, yeah, that's that. So, uh, that, that that's a good one. I would say, um, oh gosh. Uh, What's what's the one with Chevy Chase, the uh, holiday vacation or whatever? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you beat that? Yeah, National, uh, the original National Lampoon's Vacation. That's then it. you also National have Lampoon's you have you, you have it. some uh, you have some other ones: Vegas Vacation, Christmas Vacation. All That's of those, right. they're all great. I love the whole thing. Yeah. So, uh, Congressman, thank you for reaching out and and coming on the show today. And you have you have some interesting news that you wanted to uh, to talk about. You're sponsoring a bill. And I'd like to talk about that bill and, and uh, what, what actually it is. Sure. Well, I'm sponsoring legislation, and the bill's called the Shark Act, Tom. And, and you know uh, what we're dealing with with shark populations. Listen, there's a, there's a great side of the story. Shark populations are recovering, recover, recovering significantly. And listen, I think you all have done an incredible job about portraying that, uh, whether it's saltwater experience or whether it's into the blue you see shark depredation. You see sharks at Marathon Lump eating blackfin tunas. And you know mm -hmm. that sometimes you just got to leave to get out of there. You, you all do a great job of the Bahia Honda fishery there with tarpon and showing what happens there with these hammerheads. In fact, you've shown, too, how incredible animals these are. And you're actually going to catch one and said, hey, this is one of the biggest fish, you know, they ever, ever caught in your lifetime. So we, we see that. I mean, I, I've had the opportunity to travel to Florida and love catching tarpon, but also a little disappointed 
disappointed when one gets eaten by either bull sharks or, or, or hammerheads. And then off the coast, like the North Carolinas, where they rely on a charter fleet to be able to catch yellowfin tunas. Now, you know, it used to be you'd, you'd hook 15 tunas and you, you'd lose one or two to sharks. You didn't mind doing that. But today, in many days, Tom, you hook 10 and lose 10. And it's a tremendous waste of the resource. And it's also something that is going to affect the survival of the charter industry, uh, both inshore and offshore. We're seeing these sharks now eat bottom fish, eat red snapper. And for the first time ever, Tom, I've seen sharks starting to eat big uh, we call them red drum or redfish. It used to be the redfish and the sharks kind of lived together. You'd ca- you know catch some sharks and you catch some redfish, and you'd never see sharks eat the redfish. Now we're seeing them eat these big forty and fifty pound reds, which is pretty disturbing to me. So uh, at hearing and seeing all that, I looked at it and said shark depredation. As the, as the term is used, is becoming a big issue. And I've talked to a number of people across the spectrum, from folks like Guy Harvey and his foundation to, to the American Sport Fishing Association, to the National Marine Manufacturers Association, to the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Trust. Across the spectrum, everyone says we have to address this problem. And listen, this is not about killing sharks. This is about figuring out how do we as sport fishermen, recreational fishermen, how do we coexist with sharks? How do we get to keep some of our catch? You know, listen, I understand sharks, you know, we're, we're, we're living in their environment. I understand folks say, well, it's, you know, sharks just being sharks. But the question is, is how can we do this in a way that looks at shark populations in a sustainable way? How can we make sure to the recreational fishermen get to enjoy what they do? And my bill puts together a panel of experts to say, let's talk about this. Let's bring everybody to the table and figure out how do we go about this. National Marine Fisheries Service says, oh, don't worry about it. We got it. We've talked about it. But let me tell you, shark depredation is off the scale. So if National Marine Fisheries Service is addressing this issue, then they haven't been successful in really putting out solutions for that. So that's where we are today. We, we want to have that conversation. Again, I want to emphasize, this is about making sure we have sustainable part, shark populations. But we've seen from interactions with human beings in beaches, with shark bites and shark attacks, to pictures of massive schools of black-tipped sharks. I mean, all those things are occurring before our eyes. National Marine Fisheries Service ought to be proud of the, of the, the model of success for restoration of shark populations, but now they have to be willing to take the next step. What do we do in managing all of our species? And Magnus and Stevens Act requires we manage all of them, not just some, but all of those species. Interesting. And so um, you're you're 100% correct in my opinion, uh, my opinion and my experience is that the shark uh, depredation is is the highest I've ever seen in my in my lifetime. It's and everywhere, everywhere we go, it, yeah. you know, from Louisiana down to Key West up to, you know, when we cross over to the Bahamas and fish over there, it's it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was trying to tell um, some people that aren't really fishermen about that. They were like, well, but it seems like sharks are, are on the decline. They're they're about to go extinct. I'm like, well, I don't know about global numbers, but I can tell you that that is not the case in in Florida, the Gulf of Mexico. Yes over to the Bahamas. And it seems like it is very possible that maybe worldwide numbers could be going down, but other numbers are going way up, right, at the same time. So I think that's what we we may be dealing with there. But how do you see, um, as as you start to have this conversation, how do you see, what what do you see as possible solutions? 
Well, listen, I, I've talked to a lot of fishermen. You know, there are certain technologies out there that claim to be uh, capable of, of repelling sharks, of deterring sharks. And from the people that I've talked to that have used those, they've been used with limited success. So I think we have to look, you know, is there technology out there that can, that can dissuade sharks? Are there things that we can do also to, um, to, to kind of move sharks out, out of an area? I, I don't know if that's, if that's even possible, but I think it ought to be one of the things that we talk about. Another thing that we need to, to address is that, you know, we see behavior of sharks changing. I think two things are happening, Tom. One is shark populations, anecdotally, I think, are growing. So the first thing we need to do is let's do a proper stock assessment. Let's figure out exactly where the populations are today because the older stock assessments are very old. And remember, too, as we talked about restoring shark populations, they're live bearers. And everybody says, oh, long gestation times, it takes a long time for them to recover. But remember, live bearers are different than, than, um, than free spawners, where they broadcast eggs and sperm, and you hope that they fertilize, and you have millions of these things, and plankton eaters eat them, and you maybe have a handful survive. Remember, these live bearers, when these little sharks hit the water, they have a high degree of survivability. So their mortality is much lower than, than, than egg spawners. So I, I think what we're seeing is an incredible success story. So the question is, is how do we get a real handle on where shark populations are today? Anecdotally, as you've said, observationally from fishermen, I think we all know shark populations are at an all-time high. Anecdotally, let's do a stock assessment to really put some scientific numbers behind it. And then secondly, let's figure out not only shark populations, but let's figure out too, are there certain things that are happening in areas that are sort of the dinner bell for sharks? I would argue, you know, when a charter fishery goes to a certain area where we know the tunas are and sharks all of a sudden hone in on whatever it is, the sound of the engines there, you know, as, as boats slow down to troll the things or when a boat stops to, to reel a fish in, are there little triggers there? And is there something that we can do that, that counters that signal, sort of the dinner bell that goes to shark? I think there may be technologies out there that, that, that can do that. Or even things too that, you know, as you've said on some of your programs too, you've seen uh, lemon sharks targeting bonefish. Are there things we could do in shallow water to maybe, you know, send a signal at something that repels sharks? Some of those technologies, I think, are there. They really haven't been refined yet. Some would argue that they have been, but I, I want to look at technologies to do that. Also, and some folks say, Rob, all you want to do is kill sharks. I don't. But what I want to make sure we look at is there, there is a pretty, very limited fishery for sharks. I want to figure out, are, are, is there a way that we can you know, look at that fishery? Can we properly now manage shark populations just like we manage every other species of, of, of finfish. Listen, you know, the, 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 the family of sharks, chondrichthys, is a very diverse family. Uh, we want to look at, you know, are there different things that, that, that instigate certain shark behaviors? I think a lot of this remains to be discovered. I do think that there's a solution there, but it's not, it's not one single point. But we got to understand where shark populations are now, and then really look at, you know, what are the things that we that are that are that are essentially uh, pushing this sort of shark behavior, and what are things we can do to counter that? So, do you see any um, any possibility that that something like this and this bill would would infringe upon fishing rights in the future? Like people would not be able to fish in certain areas where there are high degrees of of, of shark depredation. Because I know that that's where a lot of the anglers and the people listening to this podcast are like, well, I'm all about, you know, doing something about the shark problem, but I 
not if it infringes upon my my fishing rights. Uh, Tom, so, I couldn't agree more. This 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 is not what this is about. It's not about killing sharks. It's not about pushing fishermen out of certain areas and saying, "Hey, the sharks." the sharks get to have these areas. Uh, just like as we talk about marine sanctuaries, you know, I get concerned about those things too, because marine sanctuaries many times are where the fish live. And they said, well, you can fish the rest of the ocean, but, you know, listen, 90% of the fish live in 10% of the ocean. We don't want to get pushed out of the 10% of the ocean. That's not the issue or the intent with this bill. I want to make sure that this is a situation where, where we can coexist where shark populations can remain healthy. Uh, in no way, shape, or form should this be a situation where we say it's one or the other. And that's why the makeup of this, of the group of people that would come together in this represents all the different aspects of it. And that's why we've gotten buy-in from all of the, the sport fishing groups out there that have said, hey, sh you know, shark depredation is a problem. Uh, and they will be at the table, and I know they'll be very vocal to say, listen, pushing recreational fishermen out of certain areas where we have these shark uh, uh, in, intersections is not the way to go about doing this. So that, that's, that would not right. even be on the table. And I can tell you the folks that would be part of this, part of this, this group that provides the input, I can guarantee would be very vocal to say, no, that is not an option that's on the table. That's, that's good to hear. What about um, would, would you have uh, – an invitation to a commercial, um, commercial interest, uh, commercial fishermen at the table. Would they yeah, have I, a say? I, 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 Tom, I, I think they would have to. The commercial fishermen have, you know, a lot of observational things that they can add. And listen, these sharks are are having an impact on the commercial fisheries too. Uh, what I want to make sure it doesn't become, and I, I think it'll be pretty clear, is listen, this there, there's not going to be there's not going to be a predominance or a majority of commercial fishermen. Here, but I do think that you have to have them in in the conversation, uh, because I do think that wherever the science ends up in shark populations, and we do allow shark harvest right now, the question is going to be, you know, what part of a proper management program would that be? And mm -hmm. I think you have to have commercial fishermen at the table to say, well, here's what we're dealing with with sharks. It should not be the predominance there, and it, and it won't be. But I do think that you have to listen to their perspective. Well, they also might have possible solutions about if if there was a shark harvest, how much could they conceivably harvest yes. if they were allowed to if they were allowed to fish certain areas, and would that be enough to, um, you know, do something about this problem that we're we're all seeing? And maybe you know we're we're kind of dancing around it, like well, you know, we we could use technology and different things, but maybe it is to a point to where you have to open season on on the sharks in a in a responsible way just like you monitor and and uh and and open seasons on on every other thing from a deer yeah. when you have deer over overpopulation to um you know what we're looking at with possibly increasing uh bag limits on red snapper yeah. all kinds of things like that uh and it seems like that would be something that would be considered is is the possible commercial fishing of sharks or or uh or just harvest recreationally of sharks well, Tom, that certainly has to be within the realm. And remember, National Marine Fisheries Service under Magnuson-Stevens Act is required to look at that part of how they manage these species. 
I think, though, you have to make sure you take, take a step back because we have old data on these shark populations. Mm-hmm. So let's get the most up-to-date data. So the first thing I think we need to do is a stock assessment. Let's have a very rigorous stock assessment, especially on large coastal sharks. What we're seeing is you know, great hammerheads, duskies, lemons, black tips. And we even see off the East Coast, it's amazing to me. You know, when I grew up, we used to catch a bunch of sandbars. And if you caught a 30 or 40-pound sandbar, it was a big, big fish. We're seeing 150, 175, sometimes wow. even 200 pound sandbars now eating these tuna. So, you know, something's going on there. This is a very healthy population of sharks. So let's do the stock assessments. And I think that then can inform fisheries managers to say, okay, then what role would a sustainable harvest play in those populations? And again, I want to emphasize because I don't want folks to go, oh, this is about killing sharks. It's not. It's about how do we manage this? And National Marine Fisheries Service is charged with doing this. And remember, we're right on the heels of Shark Week. Everybody loves to watch those programs, you know, about sharks and and what's happening there. Amazing, amazing animals. But I think what, what they need to understand, too, is that, you know, like anything else, there's a balance in nature. And we want to make sure that we maintain that balance. And human beings are part of this ecosystem. So we have to be part of that management element and you can't just push us out and you know your question earlier about well is it, are you just going to push you know uh, recreational fishermen out no i mean we are we are part of the ecosystem and by the way the law requires that they consider recreational and commercial interests in how they manage these species so so the law what, what, uh, the law what dictates. law is that that you're referring yeah that, that's that's, that's the, the magnuson stevens okay Act. Magnuson Stevens Stevens says very clearly, you will manage the species based on both recreational and commercial interests. Very interesting. And then uh, the data that that you're referring to is old data, the stock assessment. Why why do we, it seems like there's been a tremendous amount of science on sharks to, um, you know, and there's a lot of interest in sharks. Uh, Why are we operating on old data? Are there, have we not been taking stock assessments over the last 10, 15 years? Well, we, we, we haven't done, done any recently. A lot of the studies on sharks, you know, are tagging studies. On A great example is great whites. You know, you tag a great white, you see where it goes up and down the East Coast. But remember, those are individual sharks. So you're tracking those and, you know, and, and you know on the East Coast now there's a ban on taking short fin makos. And, and they looked at it and said, hey, we think short fin makos are on the decline. That was a determination, though, that was made by the international bodies, the Inter- International Commission on tunas, ICAT. And and they said, hey, and they manage all pelagics, including things like swordfish, marlin, and other species, tunas. And they said, listen, um, shortfin makos are overfished, but they looked at it in, in a macro sense. So that shark species has already been limited because of the stock assessments that they have. Again, it's, it's, it's data from across a much, much wider sector. What normally has happened uh, Tom, is that we've, we have engaged commercial fishermen, normally longliners, to go out and catch sharks in the areas that they live. And from that, use that survey data to, to do a profile. How many sharks did they catch per unit effort? And that tells you roughly how many sharks are there. What's, what's their age group? How many are spawners? How many are young sharks? What are the fecundity of those sharks? Fecundity is essentially how many young can they produce? And that gives you the total sense of, of biomass, how many, how many total pounds of sharks are there 
per unit area, and then spawning biomass. How many of those of those are spawning age females? How many males there too that are that are compatible spawning age males? And that gives you an idea about you know where the population is going. We don't have any of that information recently on these sharks. In fact, you know if you look at publications, you know if if you pull out a National Geographic magazine from several years ago about sharks, their little chart shows all sharks are endangered except great hammerheads. The thing is, is if you look at their references, all the stock assessments are are old. Hmm. So let's do let's let's do some stock assessments that reflect where we are today. And listen, to, to, to do that, you have to engage fishermen. You have to be able to engage both commercial and recreational fishermen and engage them in a study and say, we want you to go out and catch some sharks, not to kill them, but to gather data on them. And some of them you will you will take out because you want to be able to gather data from the cartilage in a shark, which tells you the age. So you will have to kill some of them to, to gather data, but, but some you will not. So, so I think it's incredibly important to do that. That is the first step to inform us on how do we manage these populations. And what would be the the steps necessary to to start that process like that? Can can the individual uh, constituents be part of that process? Do you need to vote on it? Uh, how, how does that get started? Sure. Like well, from- it's National Marine Fisheries Service is charged under Magnuson-Stevens Act to do these stock assessments. So uh, they're directed to do that. Uh, what we want to make sure is that they are using all aspects of data. In fact, I have language in that's actually now in the law that requires National Marine Fisheries Service not only to gather their own data from their structured studies, but to also engage recreational fishermen to get anecdotal data. In fact, I would argue if you gather that observational data from recreational fishermen, it is as valuable as the data that you gather from these catches of sharks where you categorize the sharks, how old, you know, which ones are spawners, those, those sorts of things. So we want them to do both. We want their their study designs to be informed by folks that are, are observationally seeing what's happening with sharks. A great example is Gulf Red Snapper. You know, when they were doing those, those stock assessments, they'd pull a trawl net over open bottom. And they were mm-hmm. saying, well, there are no red snapper around. Well, that's pretty obvious because Gulf red snapper are reef fish. So if, if, so if you don't try to gather samples around bottom structure, you're not going to catch anything. So that's why uh, Garrett Graves, who's the member from Louisiana and, and, and others, and myself included, said, hey, let's have an independent group besides National Marine Fisheries Service actually go out and do the stock assessment because uh, National Marine Fisheries Service wouldn't change the structure of their study to actually go find fish where the fish live. Because, you know, anecdotally, you go to these places and these places are chock sure. full of Gulf Red Snapper. You, yeah. you drop a camber to the bottom and they're all over the place. And you're like, how can they come up with this conclusion that there are no Gulf Red Snapper? So what we want to make sure, too, is that these studies are structured the right way. Let's go fish for these sharks where we are seeing them, where they, where we know they live, where we know they are, they are targeting where their meals are coming from. Instead of saying, well, we're going to fish in some area where, you know, traditionally there are no sharks there. And you go, well, the long line didn't have anything. Therefore, it's, you know, therefore shark populations are not recovered. So I think it's key to structure the studies the right way. And the most important thing is to integrate observational data from fishermen, both recreational and commercial fishermen. If you do that, then I think you'll get a true scientific indication of the populations. How long do you think that process would take if done properly? Well, Tom, what I'm hoping is that our bill, it, it got a hearing before the subcommittee. Uh, a week ago yesterday, 
uh, and I'm hoping it'll get before the full committee. I'm hoping it'll pass out, go to the floor on the House side, pass, and then uh, we'd like to see it either taken up by the Senate or have a companion Senate bill. I would hope that it would get passed and signed into law by the end of the year. That that would be the impetus for the National Marine Fisheries Service to to put this working group together, and from there you know, start on the track of designing how stock assessments would be done for all of these different classes of sharks. I, I think they'd need to start with the large coastal class of sharks. And, and listen, if if they did that and did it expeditiously, I think that they could they could track that study to start, you know, the middle to the end of next year, which I think would give us good data. It usually takes, a, a, you know, by the time they compile the data, get all the data in, it usually takes about a year after that to finally have a conclusion about where shark populations are. Hmm. So so I would say best case scenario, you know, probably a, you know, a, maybe a, a two-year period of time to a point where you'd have the data to say, let's make some decisions about managing shark populations. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the large coastal sharks. What what species would that uh, be? Yeah, lar- lar- large coastals are the hammerheads, so scalloped, smooth, greater hammerheads, uh, dusky sharks, sandbars, black tips, you know, the ones that live in those in those coastal areas. So pelagics are great whites, uh, poor beagles, salmon sharks, makos. So they, they put them in, into different categories. So the large coastals, lemons are part of the lar- large coastal shark population too. So so the ones that we normally set. come in contact with. So you're inshore and you're in your in your offshore fishery. Uh, most of the ones you come in contact there, one, most of the, the ones that are predominantly eating these fish are the large coastal class of sharks. Mm-hmm. So is there any way that uh, interested fishermen can follow along with this process or or be involved in it uh, outside of the state of Virginia where you are? Or like what is there anything that we could do? Absolutely, Tom. I, I would encourage folks to track the bill. They can go to the Natural Resources Committee website. So the U.S. House of Representatives Natural Resources Committee will have information on this bill, what's happening with it through the committee. There's also a conduit there for folks to comment. And listen, they can go to not only to our website, which is which is Whitman, W-I-T-T-M-A-N dot house dot G-O-V, but I would urge folks across the country to go to their member of Congress because their member of Congress will have a role in this when this bill comes to the floor. So go to their member of Congress and say, hey, take a look at the Shark Deck. Ask them to sign on as a co-sponsor. Ask them to track it. Ask them to support it when it gets to the floor in the House to be voted on. Ask their U.S. Senator to support it over on the Senate side. So, so and, and listen, if they have ideas about the bill, we, we, we don't claim that this is the, the, the perfect mechanism. So if people have thoughts and ideas, you know, send them our way or send them to your member of Congress. You know, we we want to we want to make this bill as good as it is as it can be. So when it gets to the full committee to be marked up, we probably will make a few changes to it just to make sure that we we get it in the form where it can gain the most support. And the best ideas don't come from inside Washington. They come from folks that live this each and every day. So what what kind of resistance do you see with with a bill like this or this particular bill? Well, listen, we've tried to reach out to all the environmental groups and, you know, folks like the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Trust are really, I think, a a very forward looking conservation group. Uh, Listen, we know we'll get some pushback from conservation groups that'll say this is a bill about killing sharks and, you know, shark populations are not recovered. uh, Therefore, we shouldn't even be talking about this. I want to make sure that we're using science to make these decisions. Right. That's so where that what stock I, what assessment I, comes in. Yeah, 
so, so what I would say to these these folks is let, let's let's gather the science. We shouldn't be afraid of gathering the science, and then that ought to drive management decisions. And the law says this is how we're supposed to do it. So we just we just want to follow the law. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, I mean, I think that most people that fish anywhere between I don't know Maine and Key West on that side, and Key West to Texas on the other side, have seen that there are way too many sharks and uh, don't really know what to do about it. And so really, I think it's refreshing um, that, that someone in your position is interested in this and does feel as though it's out of balance and, uh, and is offering some solutions. So congratulations for that. Uh, Really, really think that, that you have, um, or you seem to have the, the fisherman's best interest And and that is because you are you are a fisherman, right? Yes. Like you sent me some pictures of your office. It looked pretty awesome. I, we don't see anything behind you right now, but let me tell you, man, this guy has mounts all over his office, uh, uh, pictures of all these fish that you caught. It was very impressive looking office. I liked it. Is that the same place that you are right now? Well, actually, I'm I'm back. Oh, that's my Washington office. I'm actually back in the congressional district now. So this is my office. Uh, over out just outside of Richmond in Henrico County, so I don't have uh, don't have as many of those critters here, but uh, <laughs> but I am I am blessed to have had some great experiences fishing. And listen, I grew up uh, working as a mate on a charter boat, both in the Carolinas and the Chesapeake Bay. Worked nice. on the commercial fishing side too, so I've seen that element of life. Worked on a scalloper, worked on a longliner, so I really had great experiences on the water. Uh, so it's, it's, it's great. And that, and that is what, uh, that's what fuels my passion for making sure we're properly managing our fish populations. Cause I look at it from both standpoints. We have a, a very robust, uh, recreational fishery in Virginia with the Chesapeake Bay, with coastal Virginia, with the outer banks. Uh, and I am very connected with those folks as well as folks in the commercial fishing industry who rely on a healthy marine resource to make a living. So I always tell folks, I get somewhat disappointed when recreational fishermen are after commercial fishermen and vice versa. I really think our purpose needs to be, how do we increase fish populations in general? And when we do, then we can kind of debate who gets to catch which which portion of them. Uh, But when we see fish populations declining, that's what ought to be to join everybody together that's interested in in fish to begin with. So that's always been been my focus. And I'm blessed, you know, the, the district I represent Tom has uh, one of the largest shoreline areas of any district in the United States from the Chesapeake Bay uh, uh, and, and up, upwards in our, in our river. So it's, it's really about, you know, the interest of folks uh, in the district. And, and they are constantly in my ear about the things that we need to do to properly manage these resources. So that's, that's, that's what drives my interest. That's great. Um, I couldn't agree more on banding together and avoiding pointing the finger at each other and seeing this group of fishermen, both commercial and recreational, in all the different nuances. My feeling has always been that we we have to come together. We're strong together. Yes. We're weak apart. And there are lots of different reasons and issues and other things that try to maybe they try to purposefully divide us or just that's the way it is. Like it's all the commercial guy's fault. Well, it's all the recreational guy's fault. I don't see that as as productive at all to preserving 
fishing and fisheries as a whole. So I love to hear that uh, that you that you feel the same, and uh, it's it's hard sometimes. It like is. that well, is a really that is a really hard thing to do is not to is. point the finger at the other guy, whether it's a fly fisherman pointing the finger at a bait fisherman or a recreational mm-hmm. fisherman pointing the finger at commercial guys, but yeah. it does nothing but weaken. Weaken us as That's fishermen. That's right. Well, we, Tom, we need to grow the pie. And you've got some great groups out there. Captains for Clean Water down the Everglades doing an yep. incredible job there, really pointing out to say, hey, water quality means something, and it means something for everybody. So if we can come together and say, let's grow the pie, and then we can debate who gets to catch what portion of the pie. But if all we're doing is fighting over a shrinking pie, then shame on us. Right. And I also think that the the one group that you mentioned, I have a, a, a strong uh, connection with them. And the reason that I like Captains for Clean Water is they because they come with, with solutions. Yes. They come with solutions and they're saying, look, all we really need is to raise awareness. The solutions already exist. Yes. And that's kind of where I was kind of going with this bill is like, yeah. it's it's interesting that, that there's something out there at all, that people are at all interested, but what's the solution? What yes. is, it, you know, if this bill were to pass, what have you already thought about that? And we've already gone through that for 30 yeah. minutes about what those solutions are. But I'm, I'm, I can support anything that has logical, reasonable solutions yeah. that we can move forward, both as commercial and recreational anglers. I think that's super important. Um, so uh, the one other thing I was going to ask you is um, uh, about your about your fishing experience. So you grew up. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We 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 talked about that, but um, com- uh, on, when I was reading through your website, it said that you had done a tremendous amount of work on Chesapeake Bay. Let's get a, a health check on Chesapeake Bay, because I know I have a lot of listeners up that way for the cobia, for the uh, striped yes. bass, everything up there. That you're, It's a tremendous fishery, and I know so many people up there uh, listen to this podcast. So what could you give us a health check on, on Chesapeake Bay and where we are right now and what, what's going on up there? Sure. Well, listen, the, the, you know, there are certain indicators of the Bay are doing better. Crab populations this year in, in uh, growing uh, oyster populations. What a great success story in the restoration of oysters there in the Chesapeake Bay. Clams too. great clam aquaculture business. And we're seeing we're seeing some some things happen in the Bay that that give me uh, hope. You know, as you said, uh, striped bass populations. Listen, they 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 need to get better, but I but I see certain things that anecdotally make me believe that they're recovering. You know, cobia po- population is great great story. I think we have to really look carefully about how we manage cobia because uh, I don't want it to turn into a something where we have you know uh, large numbers of small fish. I think there needs to be a trophy element of that too, where you have a chance of catching a fish o- over fifty pounds. I think those things are incredibly important. Another thing too we're seeing, Tom, that we haven't seen. When when I worked on a charter boat back when I was a, a a very young man back in my back in my twenties, the bay was full of giant bluefish, literally bluefish mm-hmm. from fifteen to twenty pounds. And interestingly enough, I just talked to my son today. He lives in uh, in the upper part of the bay, and he's been going over on the other side of Tangier Island. And he said, "There's a there's a." a Big bluefish over there, these 10 and 15 pound bluefish that they're catching on top water and swimming plugs and, you know, great, great fun. So so we see a little bit of that, a little bit of recovery of that fishery. And we know bluefish have kind of gone through cycles. So 
we see a little bit of that in the bay. Incredible Spanish mackerel fishing in the bay. So certain elements of that. The, the one thing, though, that does concern me about the bay is the bay through years has had a very healthy population from the top to the bottom, from the pelagic area, which is the top water column, all the way down to the benthos, which is the bottom. So croaker and spot and those, those species. And, and we go through cycles with very robust croaker populations. And we see a little bit of recovery in spot, but there are certain areas in the bay that, that used to have live bottom that don't have it anymore. And those are these anoxic zones that happen during the summertime. And we've seen some of that happen in the Gulf too. So we still have a, we still have a ways to go to improve water quality, but there are little indicators of the Chesapeake Bay. And the, the, the interesting thing about natural systems, Tom, is that, you know, natural systems don't respond linearly. So in other words, if water quality gets bad, it resists and resists and resists, but then when, when it can't resist anymore, it drops off. So it's kind of like a stepwise progression rather than a straight uh, line, mm -hmm. but it also recovers that same way. So if you take pressure off of a, of a water body, you know, Mother Nature is pretty resilient. It recovers, too, in that stepwise progression. So it can take a big step up as well as the step down if you have degrading water quality. So I think there are some things that are moving in the right direction. Listen, we're challenged in the Bay watershed. We've gone in the last 20 years from 16 million in population to 18 million in population. So we still have to do more what we call non-point source pollution, the stuff that runs off the land when it rains, you know, the sewage treatment plants to point source uh, efforts have have done have done well but we still have a ways to go with non-point but i would say overall if you look at the rating of the bay i would say that there are there are elements of success there but but still a ways to go okay well I, I like where, you know, anything is on the rebound and, and mm -hmm. that's good. And there have been some really big success stories up there and, and we're experiencing some big success stories in, in South Florida. So yeah. um, it's good to to stay involved and to stay informed about what's going on, especially with this, this shark bill. So I really appreciate you reaching out and offering to share this with us and our audience here. And uh, and really thank you for for what you're doing and having having the back of the of the recreational and the commercial fishermen. That's uh, that's that means a lot because a lot of times it doesn't seem like we have any representation and other times you know it comes out of the woodwork and and you do see who who is supporting the recreational fishing uh but i know that you are and and i really appreciate that well tom thank you very passionate about it listen thank you thanks for your podcast really informative and thanks too with what your production company does. Uh, incredible, incredible programming. I love it. I'm, I'm addicted to it. I think you all do an incredible job there. Thank you. Uh, some of your new, new programs that are coming out too, you know, just, just, just incredible. So you, you really have the ability to, to, to pick out, to pick out uh, fishermen that have the passion for fishing, have the professional background. So thank you for doing that. Just keep doing more of it, man. I love it. So Thank you. Thank you. Well, we'd love to have you back on the podcast in the future to see what's going on with this this bill and uh, and any other uh, news or, or issues that we could talk about or bring light to. So uh, we'll stay in touch, and, and I'd love to have you back. Absolutely, Tom. We'll come back. We got another bill in. Maybe we'll talk about another time about uh, protecting access for hunters and Anglers Act, which is, you know, really about their effort now to ban lead. And listen, if there's there's an issue in in an, in an area where science shows lead's having an impact, I don't have a problem with that. But carte blanche ban. Uh, really, I think is problematic. But anyway, but that's something we can talk about another time. But sure, another I'd love element. to. 
That'd be that great. I'm very passionate about. Yeah. Me too. Me too. I'm passionate yeah. about fishing and hunting access. I don't yes. like to see that get taken away at all because my experience shows that when it has been taken away in areas that I am familiar with, we never get it back. We've You're never got exactly it back. Right. It's, it, it's it, death by death by a thousand cuts. We can't let it go because it's almost impossible to claw it back. Right. Right. So I am far on the side of preserving access at all yeah. costs and, and, and dealing with any sort of problems. And I mean, there's lots of ways to skin a cat, right? You can, you can yes. do, you can, you can ban access or you can do lots of other things. So yes. anyway, well, thank you for, for your time today. I know that you're very busy and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I look forward to doing it again. Sounds great, Tom. Look forward to coming back with you. And thanks again. Thanks for all you do. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye now. All right. That was a great conversation. Thank you to the congressman for coming on the podcast and also appreciate him walking us through this bill and letting us know just what it is. He also suggested that you talk to your own congressman. If you're not in the state of Virginia, talk to your own congressman about it. And, uh, you know, this is something that's out there. It's something that is is coming. So I think that it's best to be aware of it. And uh, if you agree with it, awesome. If you don't agree with it, awesome. You can make your voice be heard. And he gave us opportunities to do that. So uh, thank you to the congressman and uh, watch for this bill. Here it comes. All right. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week. See you. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.